welcome to The Green Urbanist, a podcast for urbanists fighting climate change. I'm Ross. Today's episode is a conversation with Yuna Ree and Gustavo Brunelli, um, who are both associate directors at Atelier 10, an environmental design consultancy. Combining expertise in architecture and engineering, they shape buildings and master plans to be sustainable and healthy. In this episode, we discuss what is environmental design and how that approach differs when you're working on buildings or on master plans. We talk about circular design in master planning and some of the opportunities that are available when you take this approach. We look at carbon emissions and the potential for carbon sinks in our design of landscapes and how the development and design industry is changing and the need for further collaboration and debate as we all figure out what to do and how to take action on climate change. This episode was recorded at the Footprint Plus conference in Brighton in May 2022. We recorded this with a single microphone sitting outside near the beach, so there is background noise, and I apologise for that. It's not too distracting, and hopefully it gives you a sense of the atmosphere on the day. Uh, Just to note that at some points in the conversation, we make reference to Patrick, uh, who we're talking about there is Patrick Bellew, who is the founding director of Atelier 10, and who spoke at the conference earlier in the day, so at some point we make reference to his talk. it's not that important that you didn't, don't haven't heard that talk, but just in case you were wondering who we were talking about. Um, and I've also recorded a lot of other short interviews at the conference with fascinating people. I'm in the process of editing those together, creating another episode, um, which will be released shortly. So keep an eye out for that. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast in your podcast app. You can also follow me on social media, Ross O'Kelly or The Green Urbanist on LinkedIn and The Green Urbanist podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Please enjoy the conversation. Okay, here we are. Thank you so much for joining us. If I could ask you to quickly introduce yourself, we'll start with you. Sure. So I'm Gustavo Brunelli, so I'm a technical director on the environmental team at Atelier Fantastic. Hi, I'm Yuna Ree. I'm also a technical director at Atelier 10. I've been an environmental designer at Atelier 10 for 14 years now. Wow, congratulations. Um, so Atelier 10, as you said, are environmental designers. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> Who would like to sort of jump in on that? So we basically um, design a built environment to be more sustainable and healthy. Um, and try to um, optimize the use of natural resources to to design beautiful built environment. Okay, so are you are you mostly coming from an engineering perspective in that sense, or an architectural background? Well, I have an architectural background. I studied architecture, and I met Patrick as my teacher um, at my um, uh, master's um, master's degree. Um, but um, yeah, our environmental team has a very varied background, um, people with varied background, and we like to see ourselves sitting between architects and engineers um, and try to uh, find um, sustainability strategies and measures that work for the architects and engineers. Get, get everyone agreeing. <laughs> I think... I think it is really, it straddles both sides, isn't it? And that's why in our team we have so many different backgrounds, right? I'm an architectural background as well. But 
but it's really about trying to make the buildings or the built environment, the cities, better. So that needs the rigor of the engineering to actually understand how it impacts the environment, but also has to have the understanding of the architecture and the design to see what is a design that will give you the, the best solution and can actually, how the engineering can inform the design is important, with how you can translate some things that can be technical and can be quantified and some things that cannot into design, into how you make that happen in a building or in a city or in a space. Um, can you give me an example of one of your projects and maybe tell us a little bit about your, the process that you went through? Uh, so I think one interesting, reasonably recent project I was working was like, like it was a, like going from a smaller scale, starting like a house. Yeah, so we were looking at a house in a tropical climate, so it was a house in Costa Rica, and we were looking with the climate, well, actually it was a series of houses, and we were looking at what are the key climatic designs. So you first start like, where are you, what do you want to achieve, and then what is it? Is a house, what is it that, that the client wants, what is it the goal for that house? And it was a lot of investigation about uh, working with the architects to find the right shape and right form for a sprawling roof that would give you the comfort and save the energy in that house and, and respond to the climate, create environments that could be used year-round. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a nice climate, but it can be quite warm. So it was, how can you deal with that and provide spaces in that house that will use the least materials, the least energy, and create an environment that can be livable throughout the year. So that's, that, that was an interesting recent project on a smaller scale. So you know, you want to gonna bring a bigger one? Yeah, I mean, I was gonna talk about an even smaller project in scale. Uh, I worked on uh, the UK pavilion for Dubai Expo. And that's even smaller um, um, with Estevlin, um, and just try to distill environmental ideas into this sculptural piece. I, that that was quite interesting in a very difficult climate in um, um, in Dubai. But then, yes, I work on many large projects at a master plan level, one of which is Chelsea Barracks development in Chelsea. Um, it's obviously high-end residential and it has its own um, constraints of what we can do. But um, we always try to do our best to um, come up with uh, a strategy that works for the developer and the client. Um, and also, similarly, um, Recently, we've been working quite a lot on commercial office buildings. And like Patrick mentioned uh, in the talk, they are really upping the game with their sustainability ambitions and really trying to achieve net zero carbon uh, development, which is a really interesting challenge um, that we're all buying into. I think there is, if, if you take that and, and, and rub into that, like, say, in, an, in other examples, taking a big office building in London there are a lot of constraints of being in the city but I think as, as, as Patrick said and Yuna said like there are a lot of now there is a lot of drive to, to bring that down in, in, and carbon is the big thing at the moment so it's bring that down but we haven't forgotten about the well-being and everything so it's combining all those things it's quite tricky and you ask how we go about well it's really from the first principles when you're working with the architect and saying like what do you do about your facade how do you get this all to work and then working with the rest of the design like the structure is a very big important thing on the on, on embodied carbon so how you work with the structure engineer in 
in reducing the amount you need of structure to start with and then bringing it down, looking at what is the best material, what is the best grid, what is the best shape of the building to get all of that down. And there is a lot of, of projects, quite a few, it is common to quite a few of those commercial projects we are working now in London, that there is a big drive to look at all those aspects very early on as well. So are you, have you, I mean, 14 years, have you seen the industry change over that time and are things looking much more positive? Yeah, for sure. Um, So in the beginning, we had to do a lot of um, hand-holding, a lot of educational talks to educate the clients to understand what sustainability means. But um, recently, maybe from five, six years ago already, a lot of tech companies in America like Google, they already know what they want to do and they have very high ambition. And then it became the focus changed slightly to really try to innovate in the area and try to up the game and try to do what um, what we can put uh, into uh, to add value to it along the way. So I think the focus has changed a lot. Yeah. Though I would have to say it was innovation even when we were hand holding. Yeah, sure. it, it was very innovative, and that's why we had to do a lot of and holding that that's the challenge because in the beginning what we were doing was so innovative and like Patrick said like this commercial developers didn't really want to come to us because it was just too out there Um, but now everybody wants to do it which is great but we have to then think about other things that is that's going to be you know even more innovative um, and not just repeating the things that we did 30 years ago I'm, I'm interested, so I'm an urban designer, um, so I'm really interested about how an environmental design approach might differ if you're working on an individual building or if you're working on a, on a large master plan. Is there a diff- What sort of things do you take into account that are, that are different? I think well, the, the one key thing when you're looking at a large master plan is look at the spaces in between, and that's what makes the, the urban environment in there. So there is... Uh, but you, but you cannot forget the building. So is, that is the challenge when you look at a, mass, a large master plan. You have to look at the buildings, how they come together, but how the spaces that are left, and they're not left, how they are designed in between the buildings work and how you can make them. I think one, one big thing when you look at urban scale environmental design is, is outdoor comfort and pedestrian comfort. And it's quite challenging because... Whilst indoor comfort has loads of metrics, outdoor comfort has a few. <laughs> and, and it's more difficult to quantify, more difficult people have less understanding of it. And that's for me, is one of the biggest, which makes it very interesting when you work on, on larger master plans or urban design, where it's how do you work those spaces and how you make the city comfortable outside the buildings for most of the year. And... Some climates are more challenging than others, definitely. But I think even the most comfortable climates or a mean climates in London, there are quite a few challenges to, to come through as you try and build a city that is usable, comfortable, and how you get that to work. I think that, that's, for me, the, the, the environmental design challenge on an urban scale. Yeah, but on a positive side, when you think about circular economy, 
um, there are more synergy if it's especially if it's a mixed-use development um, you can pull a lot of um, resources from here to there and then try to connect the dots to create really circular environment like for instance if you have office building and residential building next to each other you can um, capture the heat from office um, that's um, that's um, Rejected, it so. rejected from the cooling process to preheat the domestic hot water for residential buildings, and that kind of synergy can happen at a master plan level, which we really want to tap into before individual buildings are designed. Um, the same for the use of waste, for instance, um, to to use that as a resource to put into anaerobic digestion and create energy out of it. These kind of synergy can only happen at a master plan level. So that's the exciting part about um, master plans environmental design. There are lots of efficiencies as well you can derive in that. I know a lot of the talks about embodied carbon, and and when you look into a larger scale. You can look from material side of things, you can look at bulks and, and things like that, but also in terms of space and how you integrate things like what things can you bring in common so you avoid duplication, you make use of the kind of density to minimize the stuff you need to put in. So you, you find commonalities and, and bring them together. So a sprinkler tank to feed more than one building, you know, those kind of things or, or on a larger scale. So the energy center, the centralization of certain energy that you can use that scale to actually improve efficiency, but also minimize material, minimize embodied carbon that you put into it. It's amazing when you, when you give these sort of examples, it sounds so obvious when you say it, like, of course, why would we just let heat, you know, out into the, the air and not actually use it? But it takes someone to actually come and say... We need a break with how we're traditionally doing buildings, doing master plans, do them a bit differently. I've, I've just uh, managed to catch um, a presentation here at Footprint on um, embodied carbon in landscape, which is really interesting. And, and I think is opening my eyes about um, we are very focused on buildings and there's a lot of stuff going on at the, the landscape and the public realm level, which can be very carbon intensive that we're not, is maybe we're not, we're not considering until just now. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? It's a shame I missed that one because I, I, I was on the, other, on the other one. I think, yes, there is a lot that I, I think we are, we are really focused on building because they have a lot of material in it. That's the, the first and foremost thing. The one thing that, I, that, that is something we started exploring a few years back and, it, it, and I think it, it's incipient, so it needs a lot that comes with the landscaping, is how much can we actually try and use the landscape and they will be always embodied on, on building it but how can we use that as a carbon sink rather than, 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 than a carbon intensive design piece they will, we'll build something there will always be some carbon in it but can we use the landscape just like, like we do carbon offsetting through woodland uh, reforestation can we use land, urban landscape and, as a carbon sink like we in building design, we use a lot of, of landscape and greenery as a, a microclimatic adjustment as well from, from in terms of making the, the environmental nicer and cooler, changing air and humidity, modulating humidity and air temperature, sometimes even noise or air quality. But can we use that as also as carbon? And something very incipient that has been in my mind for a while, and I said, like, it's something we should look into more deeper and see can we really start looking at is it the landscaping 
from a small building to a large urban scale, and obviously the larger scale, the more you have impact as a carbon sink. And I think that's something that, that we as an industry should look yeah. more often. Building on that, I mean, if you think about infrastructure, that's very embodied carbon heavy. Um, but, um, and um, Patrick was talking about this labyrinth, which he kind of uh, developed for many of her, his early um, uh, projects. But um, concrete is very uh, carbon intensive. But can we think about something that is already in the infrastructure? For instance, um, a huge uh, sprinkler tank that the water is always going to be there and use that as a, as a heat sink for projects. Um, and that, that infrastructure is already there and it's built. Can we use that to our benefit for our energy story? Um, I think that kind of thinking and you know, connecting the dots, and that can be the same for um, many other areas, the landscape. We just have to think differently and try to make sure that the resources are not just um, wasted. Um, you've been, have you been here just for today of the conference, or were you here in previous days? What, uh, what have been your sort of big takeaways from today? For me, I think these kind of conferences are really critical at this time because we really have to learn from each other and we have to learn fast and we have to collaborate and not one person can solve the whole problem and I learned so much I mean we are in the design sector and we're, our focus is quite design focused but that's not the whole story I mean we can never um, um, just build net zero building all the time and we have to think about you know carbon offset and that was one of the yeah, sessions well. that I attended and learn from them what they are doing and so we just have to complete the story as a you know professional from many different sectors um, that was my takeaway that we have to collaborate more and share knowledge yeah, I think, I, think uh, and I was talking just before we started as well that it's the very impressive thing about the conference and I've been here just today unfortunately I couldn't come before but is the, the, the quality of the people and the one thing that I, that, I, that I was looking is like how much knowledge is there and how much it's, it's really focused and brought people bringing people together on the focus on that and bringing all this knowledge to share as you know said I think uh, as you know mentioned the carbon offsetting was when I said I want to watch that because that's something that I don't know a lot I want to learn more and that's I think the great thing like of the conference is getting to to see what other people are doing interact with the other people check with them and 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 learn with each other looking at the things and 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 raise debates raise the questions it's like there was the debates on the carbon offsetting today that I think very interesting is like what is what should we consider as a carbon offset can we consider um, avoidance as an offset or should we really go for reduction as only as the only way of offsetting? And there are endless debates, and I think we'll, and, and we will eventually converge. I don't think there is a conclusion yet. I don't have a conclusion, but it, it's, it's those debates that need to happen and, and need to happen more often so we can actually, as an industry, kind of go forward. And as well, you can see the amount of information, and you've seen, I think, from quite a few presentations, people have showed, like, in the past few years, the amount of things that came out, a lot, a lot of thoughts, documentation, publications, new standards, new methodologies that came out. And it, it is important that we all can try and get together and understand how we can bring that 
together into a, a, a way forward for, as an industry. Yeah, I think I think the carbon offsetting one is really interesting because it's it's a bit of a dirty word in the industry. It's like, oh, you're relying on offsetting. That's you know, but it it does seem like we need it's a it's a necessary evil perhaps and something we need to get our heads around doing it properly. I think the the, the, the whole thing is carbon offset is the end of the journey, isn't it? Like it, it and as you said, because we are focused on the design, we we our focus is minimizing the the, the, the carbon, the energy, the impact from the beginning. And that, that, that's, that's what you should do. And then offsetting is just at the end. It's just what you... Because you never get to... The, if you build something, there will be carbon in it. Yeah. So it, it, you don't get to zero. Now, then come, that's when the offsetting comes. So you get to get to the minimum you can possibly do, and then you offset. But it's very interesting to see how can you really offset? How can you minimize? For me, it was really how can you minimize carbon globally? Yeah. Is, is the offsetting piece. It's not necessarily kind of let's buy offsets, I'll build something horrendous and then buy the offsets to, to kind of like clean, clean it. It's like, it's like from, on a global scale, we need to do some offsetting because we need to continue to use carbon, to produce carbon, to emit carbon, or not carbon as just carbon, the whole uh, greenhouse gases. But it's, it's how we do globally to really reduce that and the offsetting will be needed for that and that's why I wanted to I find it interesting I wanted to, to get into that and, and see how that discussion will converge at the end on, on what is what is the way to tackle globally the, the way to offset the emissions we inevitably have what, what, what do you think because you said that um, you know we can't avoid certain carbon uh, emissions in, in construction and building things do you think we can get to a point eventually and, and what are sort of where we're, everything can be net zero carbon without offsets and what are the barriers to that I, I think it, it was very interesting the, the Andy Andy's talk that was kind of the thought provocative thing I was like how, how do we resolve it and, and I, I kind of agree with him that I have the optimistic view that we will find a technological solution to make the, the world but there will be other problems that will come out of that, no doubt about it. But it's make resolve the, the, the carbon in grass. And he was talking about like change the world from a whole electric world based on renewable energy. And that that's that's the that's the time when kind of the chair you're sitting can be manufactured without emitting carbon. Then you start talking about the other things that go on the chair that, that, that might be not so great for the environment and we, not, we must not lose sight of that. But I think there is a, a conversion. And if you look even just the UK grid, the way it went really steeply down, the, the electricity, the carbon intensity of the electricity in the UK went steeply down on the last 10 years. And yes, we will eventually come, up, come up all the way down. That means anything made using electricity will not have carbon associated with that electricity but there are other processes involved there will be carbon that and that's why you need to start looking broader but I, I think there is a there is an optimistic I have the optimistic view that we will find a, a solution in that and bring that carbon so eventually what I said like everything has carbon probably we'll get deal with that but they will have something else <laughs> they will have to deal at the time and, and as, as the human race will keep evolving and, and dealing with the with the problems we cause and we create yeah and we need involvement uh, from a wider industry like Andy said I mean renewable energy great we can create energy the electricity from renewable energy but that has 
you know, fluctuation in in um, generation. So we may have to connect to different countries, different different part of the world, to to um, get the energy from where there is always sunshine, and then vice versa. So that kind of more wider thinking, global level of thinking may have to happen. But I think electrifying as much as possible would be the first step. I think. And also minimizing the demand, energy demand. We shouldn't forget about that because um, then it would be a much easier journey to get to net zero carbon. I think if we have to reduce the amount of energy we, we use to do the things we need to do because we need, like, from an economic point of view, from a societal point of view, we and growth of population we will end up using more energy. We will need more and more energy. So if we reduce what we consume for every little thing that we consume energy, that we, we might be able to grow without growing the energy need. So it can grow, but the energy can go down. And that, that's the whole point of the minimization, the first step of reducing the demand, reducing what we need. with uh, renewable generation. Yeah. I want to ask you a final question. So something I ask all my guests who come on the podcast is um, there's this idea that we're in a, a decade of action on taking action on climate change. From your perspective, what are the, the big shifts, the big changes that need to happen over the next 10 years to make sure we're, we're successful? It's quite a big question, so you can take a second to think about it. <laughs> I don't know, there are so many things we need to do. I think is if we take a step back and be a little bit more philosophical, because your question is quite large, and, and look, on a global scale, I think what we need to do is, is get together and, and try and find ways to look at uh, from, from the simple things as the energy generation that has to be across the world and share to share that, that, that development across. And that's the big challenge to, to the, is, is, is find a balance that gets the world more equalitarian to actually be able to, to help where where, where the problems lie because there's always the, the kind of imbalance between uh, developing and, and less developed nations and I think it's, it's finding a way to get everybody together is the way is the way forward now what actions need to be to that love too many <laughs> you know but but I think for me that that's the that's what what needs to happen sooner rather than later to, to bring it to resolve the, the crisis. I think we always have to be quite mindful not to just look into this carbon carbon vision tunnel. Um, but we cannot deny that carbon issue, carbon emissions, is uh, the biggest issue at the moment to fight the climate change. And what I think we ev- everybody has to learn is to be more carbon literate. So they need to understand what is the carbon intensity of their daily choices um, and material choices for architects and people in the building industry. But it can be wider and they need to understand what is the carbon intensity of, you know, um, vegetable versus um, meat consumption. And they need to understand the implication to change their action. So I think learning to understand the carbon intensity of all the different materials and uh, uh, the things that they, they buy. And the education about carbon literacy, I think, is really crucial. Yeah. 
Guys, that's been a fantastic conversation. I found that really inspirational and I really loved your, your energy and everything. Any final words before we close? I think thank, thank you very much for having us. I, I think it's, it's been a fantastic conference as well. I, I want to say it was brilliant to see. And I think it, it's quite interesting that it was such a focused conference. You have like very brilliant people around in, yeah. the, in, this, in this marquee over here, which was great, great, great to be part of as well. Uh, well, thank you for this opportunity to talk and I think you're doing great at sharing these kind of stories from many different people in your podcast and trying to educate people on uh, climate change issues. Uh, so I think thank you very much for this opportunity. Mm-hmm.